0: education reform the legalization of marijuana or women's rights the people's issues are covered on these airways so stay tuned for the best and leading-edge progressive ideas and analysis and remember to support independent media financially <laughs>
1: Welcome to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM, here to start your day with news and insight about New York and the world around us. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. Each week, my co host, David Brand, and I try to bring you perspective from those who shape our city the elected officials and the policymakers, but also the experts and influencers and everyday people that keep New York City moving ahead. And whenever the opportunity arises, I personally like to focus on any one of our city's boroughs or any one of our neighborhoods. And that's the case today, because today I'm focused on the Rockaways located in the southernmost section of Queens on the Rockaway Peninsula. Now, I didn't get out to the Rockaways in Queens this summer, primarily because in this new world, we've all made decisions about our travel. And even though I've periodically visited uh, visited when I have, it's been a great respite not as crowded as Coney Island, as one of my guests today will point out because she discusses it in her book, Rockaway. And yet it's still a destination for people this summer. It was for people who wanted to find a place close to home and enjoy the sun and the surf and the community. One of my clearest memories was when I was working with an organization that was helping people with health care after Superstorm Sandy eight years ago. I watched people lining up, waiting for support from the Red Cross and other nonprofits and government services. But I also saw crews of volunteers from across the region helping with the recovery. The area has seen its share of heartache over the years, but also periods of promise and growth. And new development, including what I read just a few days ago about a luxury hotel that has just opened up. This, this year has been a difficult one for all of us, with a pandemic that also brought, for a period, higher infection rates and two of Rockaway's zip codes. Uh, um, and that was among the most affected area of COVID-19 in our city. But despite the fear of contagion and the new rules requiring people to wear masks and maintain social distancing, Rockaway Beach continued this summer to be one of the favorite places for New Yorkers who were seeking relief from the lockdown enforced due to the pandemic. The Rockaways is made up of 10 communities, each with their own economic and social identity. And as the uh, state controller, Tom DiNapoli, noted in a report out a few years ago, civic pride is evident through large numbers of active community-based organizations. And that brings me to my first guest, someone whose family has been invested in the community for generations. That's New York State Assemblymember Stacey pfeffer who represents the New York State Assembly's 23rd District. That includes a number of neighborhoods, Broad Channel, Hamilton Beach, Howard Beach, uh, Lindenwood, Ozon Park, and of course the Rockaway Peninsula. Her mother, this is why I said her family's been invested for generations, her mother, who I uh, knew years ago back when I was a reporter at New York One, uh, Queens County Clerk Audrey Pfeffer previously held this Assembly seat for over 25 years. And upon Stacey Pfeffer Amato's election, she became, this became the First mother-daughter team to hold the same seat in the New York State Legislature. With that, I'd like to welcome Assemblymember Stacey Fever-Amato to WBAI.
2: Good morning, Jeff and David. How are you?
1: I'm doing fine. Great to have you here today. Since this is your first time on City Watch, I'd like our listeners to get to know you and your district just a bit more. Uh, I briefly outlined uh, your experience in government, but tell me a little more about your family and growing up in the Rockaways.
2: First of all, that was a great introduction. So um, I think you really covered a lot. However, what um, I love to let people know is that I was born and raised on the peninsula, and I'm raising my family there. Um, also, now I have two beautiful children, teenagers. So you know, we always debate about if teenagers are pleasant. Um, and I'm married <laughs> for over 20 years um, to a local pizzeria, uh, family-owned business. So um, that's a really interesting story, but it might not be for the air.
1: But, <laughs>
2: Um, so what, I, what, I kept my roots here. I'm sorry.
1: Oh, what led you to want to go into politics to, to follow in your mother's footsteps?
2: So it's interesting. Like you, you said like my childhood, you know, my mother was always a person of service and she was, she is, well, was a single mother at that time. So, um, I always went with her wherever she would be traveling to. So if it was Stacy, come with me, I have two meetings and then we'll go to Corvette. I'm aging myself. Um, So I always traveled with my mother because I was the youngest. I have an older brother, and I was always with her. And I really grew up in watching my mother at her job. And she loved it and had passion and loved people. And I think just naturally I developed skills because I love people. I love being in the public. I love helping people naturally before I ever uh, ran for office. I mean, I uh, was a parent association president. I led the charge in recovery after Superstorm Sandy. I was a paraprofessional and then advocated for all the paras within the school system and made sure everyone got their credits and helped everyone. So I think when the moment came to run, I think all of my life experience came in that moment, and I said, yeah, I think I'm the perfect person to represent um, the 23rd Assembly District for my experience, for my passion, and just people. And it just was a natural um, step forward.
1: So I'd read a report, and I'm gonna talk about it later in the show as well, by uh, State Controller Tom DiNapoli, which had mentioned that in the early part of the last decade, uh, uh, the Rockaways had the second fastest population growth among a number of neighborhoods in the city. Uh, But then, of course, there was a 16% loss after Superstorm Sandy. We're just a few weeks away from the anniversary. Has the area fully recovered? What's still needed? So that's an
2: interesting, analysis because yes right after superstorm sandy people the population decreased because people were displaced you know my children had to go to a different school in brooklyn so families were displaced for a long period of time either to they rebuilt their home or to their building or they were able to get back into the Rockaways. but actually superstorm sandy started the renaissance of people i mean you said it yourself organizations that came down to help us i mean it went from red cross to you know local um, food pantries, other pantries popping up, um, people came to Rockaway and sort of like, it was like that aha moment or that V8 moment where they said, are you kidding? This place exists? I've been traveling for hours to go to the Hamptons? Or, you know, generationally, if your parents didn't come to the Rockaways, how would their kids know? So when the young, a younger generation, I'll say at that time, you know, 20s, 30s were coming here to help, they sort of said, you know, ma, dad, I'm at the Rockaways. Oh, we always went to Coney Island. Oh, our family always traveled upstate. So there was this whole awakening to what exists in Rockaway. And that's what the big surge was because everyone was saying, wow, I'd rather. And, you know, we have the worst commute. My constituents can go up to an hour and a half to get to the city. But When it's your choice, you say, well, I'd rather sit on that train because when I come home, I come home to paradise. And that's what the Rockaways is. And you said yourself, like, you didn't make it this summer. But we had record numbers this summer because people still felt being outside and going to the beaches was a safe place during this coronavirus. So then more people discovered us because there was nowhere to go with your children. So it's really like, I think, an awakening. There's generational people like me that will always have the stand between our toes. But definitely it's a lot of new people coming. Just any day, like any time, come to the ferry. Like today is a beautiful Sunday. Go to the ferry Um, landing, and see how many people are coming off that ferry to come to Rockaway on a Sunday in October.
1: So later in the show, I'll be talking with Diane Cardwell, who wrote a book called Rockaway. And in the book, she talks about her love of surfing, but also how she discovered and fell in love with the Rockaways and moved there. And at one point, she says how easy it was to find a community. When you think of New York City, what makes the community of uh, the Rockaways, I'm speaking of all the neighborhoods, uh, what makes it there uh, distinct?
2: I think we are a welcoming committee. I think our diversity is our strength, and I think we welcome, you know, um, folks that come. I don't see any reason that, you know, people talk about people down for the day and all the bad hype that gets maybe out there on social media, but really, I think as a beach community or anybody that I know that comes to the beach, being a beach person or appreciating the boardwalk for that matter, which is gorgeous, I think it just brings us together, right? We're all at a good place. It's a little zen, you know, so I think there's a calm that comes with that. But within the community that's developed since the um, Renaissance after Hurricane Sandy, there's been a big surfing community. And I thank you for mentioning my mother because she was in the forefront when the surfers came to her. I think we talked about it. It had to be 20 years ago when they talked about having a surfing beach. So having that foresight to say, sure, let's do it, allowed a whole community that didn't have a place to go to go. And I always figure that we're sort of, myself, I don't think we're misfits. I think we're all unique, right? I think I'm a unique kind of blend. I think now yeah, my family's a unique, unique kind of blend. I married a, a guy who's born and bred in Italy, so he's an immigrant, a pizzeria. I'm into, We do politics and pizza. I don't know if that's a natural blend of Rockaway, but I think people find their mates and matches because there's something about, I hate to sound a cliche, like salt in the air, but it is an ease of a community. Now, there's a lot of issues out there. Don't, don't, you yourself just mentioned there's 10 different communities and there's a lot of. Um, different uh, perspectives on, you know, our politics are different throughout the Rockaways, um, our socioeconomics out there. But overall, I mean, I was born and read in the Far Rockaway community, and I still think it's a welcoming and loving community. I think it's an open community. I don't think, I don't know, I always felt like we didn't have a judgment here.
1: So, New York City, much like the state and the country, is facing significant unemployment and many of the businesses we've come to know have already closed or may not make it through this. I see this every day here in Jackson Heights. What's been the experience in your district?
2: You know, I could have made my own script this way, but I married a small business owner. My husband operates with his family for 40 years a Pizzeria in Rockaway. So, marrying an owner, I listen, you know, I mean oh my God, my sales tax. I can't believe the water bill. Could you believe we're double taxed? And it's, you know, 20-something years being together, I really got an understanding. Um, Rockaway Beach, out of all the communities, the stores have really become like a bonded unit. And and I, I walk to work. Um, I'm always in my neighborhood. So really have a, a great relationship with a lot of the small business owners. And they are struggling. So if it's our retail store, even our delis, our our bagel stores, the volume is not the same. People are not leaving for work. People are bringing their own food to, to work. You know, they're packing their own lunches. And then if you take our bars and restaurants, which really have grown in that small, you know, distinctive, we have so many different smaller restaurants and a couple larger but really distinctive, they're also hurting with all these restrictions. But something that really relates to my job as the Assemblywoman is that we have a bill out there to, um, you know, the businesses did not get... Um, they were not honored for their interruption insurance that they had with um, their insurance companies. And this even goes back to Hurricane Sandy, when a lot of businesses' insurance policies didn't cover wind. And I have in legislation on that. Now, here's, here's um, on the pandemic, and businesses were closed for months, and they go through their insurance company, and they say, oh, here's the fine print. Pandemic isn't covered or, or loopholes. And we have a bill out there, which I, I'm very frustrated by, that it's not um, getting past the governor. Uh, he's not pushing his, this through in his own agenda to get our small businesses the interruption insurance they've been paying for 40 years. Some of these older, you know, mom and pops that have been there forever, or newer businesses that paid insurance. It's just another way of corporate America that's hurting small business.
1: Where does that bill stand right now?
2: Um, Bobby Carroll um, um, is carrying it, and it's, Didn't even come out of um,
1: out of the assembly committee.
2: And we're okay. Yeah, and we're pushing for it every conference that we've had. We speak up, and this goes from downstate. The one thing that's so interesting being a state legislator is my the relationships I've made with upstate New York. And this bill would help from the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean all the way down to Plattsburgh, because there's so many businesses across the state that would be using their insurance. I mean, I just had a flood in my apartment. Could you imagine if my, from apartment above, could you imagine if I went to the insurance company and said, oh, sorry, we don't allow 11th floor. If the 11th floor floods, we're sorry, that's a loophole. The businesses, the the insurance is saying, well, pandemic's really not covered. That's not an act of God. You know, they're finding every loophole. Again, this is something where we have to tackle as a state. The insurance companies are loaded. And this is, again, this is a wound like it's open for me because it goes back to Hurricane Sandy for how many businesses and homes were not covered with the policies that they had.
1: And I'm glad you uh, have brought this legislation up, because my next question really was uh, what you expect this fall for the legislature, what you would like the legislature to take up uh, to address the pandemic. I mean, the governor's received largely positive uh, feedback on his handling of this, but there still are a lot of needs, not just in your district, but across the city and state. So what what would you like the legislature to take up this fall? Well,
2: before I get to what they would take up, I think what happens is there's such a discrepancy between what a small business is. So I like to use locally owned, you know, small. But small businesses, by definition, can be 100 employees. Well, I know a successful store that has three in the Rockaways. So we get lost in our own legislation, um, what well, we pass laws. So, again, it's almost like what happened with the PPE grab, right? These bigger corporations grab money, and the mom and pops didn't. But thank goodness for, like, the Queen's Chamber who helped folks get through a lot of this red tape in our office, who were very active, helping folks break it down. So I think when I talk, think about legislation moving forward, I want to make sure it gets to Main Street. You know, how we can help our smaller businesses, which is probably uh, working with the city of New York in that sense for programs to come through, maybe small business services, but really on a grassroots basis, which was what I was doing with, say, the PPE, the federal grant. But that's like some of the legislation what we need to look at are some of the numbers. I know that our minority and women-owned small businesses have been severely hurt during this pandemic, so I want to make sure we have some programming towards that. Actually, we had businesses in the Rockways that were women-owned businesses were never registered as minority women-owned businesses, so we're trying to bring those folks together. And then look at legislation that helps that, or more loans. You're having the banks, not the state banks, the big banks, have low-interest loans to help boost um, our businesses, they need certain loans, because a lot of business owners, let me tell you something about small business owners, pride, 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 and they don't want government handouts, but if there's a small interest amount on it and they could borrow and, and do that, then they would borrow money that way, but a lot of them don't like government handouts, they don't want to owe anybody, it's very it's very interesting once you get in really embedded into the culture of small businesses.
1: So I know we only have about two minutes left. I do want to get to something uh, that I know is extremely important to you. It's about uh, disruption of power, the outages that take place after uh, some of these storms hit, like the recent tropical storm that hit New York uh, back in early August. Uh, you wrote to the president of pse after the tropical storm noting uh, widespread communication failures. What has happened since? I
2: gave a big sigh. I don't know if you can hear that already. I heard,
1: I heard the sigh as well. <laughs>
2: you know, it's so frustrating. And I, and I say this, and, you know, I'm four years, I mean, I ran four years ago. Um, I still feel like I'm learning. And one thing I participated in prior to just I, I, see, I, see, I can never say, right? Um, Hurricane Sandy, I was on, like, several um, task force and and one of the conversations we talked about was PSE&G and response and resiliency, resiliency, and and raising um, the boxes higher and building better and so on and so forth. When this storm hit and the amount of outages we had in Rockaway and we had three percent of PSE&G, it was like I never, I, like all my time was wasted because at the end of the day we still had tremendous outages, tremendous, right? So my letter to them. Nothing's really changed at this moment because they suffered from um, communication breakdown with Verizon. So people were calling them and couldn't get through because Verizon, the relationship between Verizon and PSEG broke down. But even so, my biggest, um, what I bring forward to them all the time is we're only 3% of their entire portfolio. So why wouldn't you hit us first, take care of us, and move along to the left of Long Island? Why isn't there some plan to... Expand what you do in a in – because a, it's only 3%, so as much as it's huge to me, it's little to them. So knock us out of the park and then move on. I mean, that's what we're talking about, power grids, and really moving forward about how to look at Rockaway as a power grid now. You know, green infrastructure, environmental, how we could bring something forward to protect us because we can't get buried lines in the Rockaways because of the water table. You know, I actually have a bill with Senator Comrie that we're – demanding or suggesting, or I guess it's a demand, um, that the capital budgets of our utility companies invest 40% into infrastructure, has to be committed of their capital budget, meaning in different areas, like, say, in the middle of Queens, you know, Bayside, um, that they are, how much lines are they really burying to never go through this again? And and that's really um, um, national grit, um, national grit, no, no. it, sorry. but in the Rockaways, we don't we can't bury our lines. So what capital projects can they bring in to bring the most resilient infrastructure that we don't um, have these types of outages? I mean, I was called by nursing homes that had no power. You know, that's a problem. Now did they get to them quicker than others? Sure. But again, knowing that the peninsula has 19 adult homes and a ton of nursing homes, wouldn't you think that PSE&G would put us as a priority? Again, in a three percent bubble, so that's why I wrote a letter, and I'm still have frustration with that. We're sort of in the pandemic, and I think the, you know, everything on the shelf because of the pandemic phone calls are um, out there right now. But ha- however, we're still in um, hurricane season. We're already in the Greek alphabet, so we cross our fingers because, as you mentioned, we're not even at the um, mm-hmm. anniversary of Hurricane Sandy. So we're gonna cross our fingers to hope that we can get through this hurricane season without another uh, hurricane or a severe tropical storm.
1: So I'm going to have to wrap up, but I want to stump you with a question. If someone wants to go to the Rockaways, where should they get a good slice of pizza?
2: Elegantes, of course, but I want (laughs) to say um, we do have a great relationship with all the other pizzerias in the area. We actually, you know, who borrows boxes, who needs some yeast. So we are, uh, that's where we're very very unique. We have a great relationship with Sorrentino's is on 129th street. And Boardwalk Pizza, which is in the new Auburn area that was built up. So we do, I would say, come to Rockaway, hitch a ride to Rockaway Beach. And there's numerous Rockaway uh, rest establishments that you can enjoy your day. Um, I would love to have you both. I know you mentioned on your own introduction about the Rockaway Hotel, and uh, it is phenomenal. It's something that we've been looking forward to, but there's so much to do. A beautiful fall day, so I hope I see you all in Rockaway Beach.
1: And, uh, Assemblymember, where can people go to learn more about you and your work?
2: On my social media, I have a Facebook account, um, Stacey Feffermato. Amato. I have an official Assembly page, Assemblywoman Stacey Feffer Amato, Instagram, Twitter. Um, we're out there. Just to, to just put it out there, I'm actually up for re-election. It's, it is an election year this year, so my stuff is all over the place. I'm very active. I'm very um, I'm on-the-ground person. I'm at every meeting that I can go to. I'm on every Zoom I could possibly be at. I'm actually right now going to a couple of local events outside socially distance because, like you, I have been keeping a very strict uh, protocol regarding um, social distancing for the the safety of my family and some people who have some um, issues and just taking it. But outside events are fantastic, so wherever they can reach me. I'm Assembly very, I'm out members, there. they'll probably see me on any any. They'll see me on any street. I'm always out.
1: <laughs> Assembly member Stacey Fefferamato, thanks for joining me here on WBAI t- this morning.
2: Thank you. Everyone, have a great day, and wear a mask.
1: Always, always. And in fact, I'm going to get to my next guest in a moment, but because the assembly member mentioned to wear a mask, if you don't have a mask, and I'd be surprised if you don't by now, or if you, have like me, have decided you want to get a number of masks so you can wash them, which you should do, you should get a WBAI mask. I have two, and I did this because I want to be able to show off my WBAI pride whenever I'm outside And the way to do that is just to make a contribution of $35 to WBAI. That way, you're supporting the station and you're supporting your health. Two in one. There's no better deal than that. The number that you can call is, ah, where is it? 516-620-3602. 516-620-3602 to make a contribution and get a WBAI mask. Let me get to my next guest who's focused on the resilience and vibrancy of the Rockaways. Jean DuPont is the founder and executive director of RISE, the Rockaway Initiative for Sustainability and Equity. And in this role, she's worked closely with the Rockaway community and city agencies over the past 15 years. Much of her work has involved organizing community members and youth in utilizing outdoor space for programming focused on things like social equity, health, and environmental justice. Jean DuPont, welcome to WBAI.
3: Great. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak to everybody today. Thank you very much.
1: So before I get to RISE, I want to know more about you. What brought you to Far Rockaway 15 years ago?
3: Yeah. Um Interesting. My father grew up in Brooklyn and always spoke fondly of the Rockaways. Um, uh, 2005, I purchased a bungalow in Beach 20s, and I became very involved with my neighbors in the Far Rockaway community. Um, it was—I um, think some people were surprised to find that we were interested in being uh, being in that area. But it was a very underserved area with very few programs and services. And I wanted to do more to help to bring attention to the issues that existed there. So, um, yeah, that's how I I started.
1: And uh, I I briefly mentioned the Rockaway Initiative for Sustainability and Equity. I'm going to say RISE makes it easier to say. Can you talk a little about what led you to found RISE?
3: Yeah. So I think it was actually the community and the relations that I developed um, that actually led to the founding of the organization. Um, 2007, the first thing I had done was really wanted to bring more focus to the fact we had so many neglected lots, open space, no space really for young children or families to spend their time. Um, so I led an initiative that was focused on designing a park from the community themselves. And um, starting by looking at Beach 9th Street to Beach 32nd Street, um, I led a kind of a a group of of, uh, local residents and people around this initiative and idea of developing their own space. Um, We pressured the city at the time to develop this park um, and the Bloomberg administration actually picked that up as part of an initiative that they were working on called Plan NYC. Um, That park um, actually brought together uh, urban planners, designers, and others to take those ideas that were developed from the residents and developed the park itself. In 2012, the park actually opened, and the park serves as an excellent example, I think, and a model for effective community-led planning, because in Sandy, um, it actually served as a buffer and a protector from the storm surge, and yet at the same time, it serves hundreds of local families with space, right, it includes the football field, the skate park, an amphitheater, playground in one of the most underserved parts of New York City. And so I think that was really what led to the founding of the nonprofit itself because it made me realize the importance of community organizing, of ground-up kind of approach to community building. Um, And I should mention that, you know, the founding name of the organization was actually originally the Rockaway Waterfront Alliance. And Mm -hmm. um, Rockaway Waterfront Alliance was in – uh, we were, you know, we're still we're still in in um, we're still the same organization. However, it was renamed in 2019 Rise, essentially because of the fact that so much of our work is not specific just to the waterfront, but is actually more engaged with the community themselves. So, um, yeah, so that's how we started.
1: And that's a good point, because after Superstorm Sandy, obviously you had to reprioritize your work. Can you talk a little about the years since 2012?
3: Yeah, so a lot has happened, actually. Um, our organization, when Sandy hit, um, we were just on the verge of starting our redevelopment of the Rockaway Firehouse at Beach 59th Street, which today is our headquarters. Um, but we were really kind of a small um, small and scrappy group uh, in in 2012 and so at that point we really had primarily youth development programs in many of the public schools in the Rockaways Um, we really haven't changed our work at all I think we were still at that point we really kind of ramped up more civic engagement you know getting and serving the needs of the community at the time which was you know bringing them food getting them the services they needed but I would say we didn't really change and haven't really changed what we've done. Um, but I think the Rockaway community, as a result of Sandy and just as a result of being a waterfront community, has always been resilient and is just becoming more, uh, you know, many of the, the, the projects and the things that the community in general are doing now are more sustainable and um, I think, you know, are just make the community itself a little bit more resistant and resilient. Um, to future storms, um, so so yeah. And, and I noticed,
1: I noticed you had transformed a dilapidated firehouse in the heart of Far Rockaway. Can you talk a little about uh, how you transformed it and what it does, what it serves as now?
3: Yeah, so so it's exciting. In 2010, the North took out an ad in the paper uh, for this. Firehouse that um, they had. Uh, City of New York had rebuilt a new firehouse for the firemen in 2004. Uh, so the fire fire uh, firehouse moved a few blocks away, and then this this building kind of sat uh, at Beach 59th Street. I saw it every day, every um, and I, and always envisioned kind of doing something with it. Um, City of New York uh, 2010 awarded us the building. And then from 2010 till 2016, we worked on the redevelopment and the rehab of that space. Um, That firehouse was really very, very important, not only to me, but community residents, because, um, you know, there are a number of of, um, uh, uh, firefighters and policemen who live in the Rockaways. And so that history was very important, I think, to the the general community. So obviously I did not want that building to be torn down, and I thought – it served as a, as a, in a good location. It's one of the most densely populated areas of the Rockaways, and um, and it was surrounded by a lot of low-income housing, um, a lot of need in terms of um, uh, lack of services and resources for the community. Um, so I thought it was a really good location to specifically serve as a community center. So that's what we've developed it as, and... What's nice about it is it's a great place for us to be able to convene um, people around initiatives like the park and other urban planning projects that we've uh, led. And um, right now, even in the midst of COVID, I think, um, again, it allows us to kind of have a foothold in an area where we can start to um, uh, slowly gather people And slowly also engage people even outdoors and around our building as well so um, so that's that's how the building um, came about and and I hope people will uh, consider making a trip out to visit
1: so we've got just a few minutes left and there's two topics I do want to discuss one is that you've been embarking on the Rockaway Wellness Way initiative can you just tell our listeners a little about what that's going to involve sure
3: so uh, let's see. So a couple of years ago, we started a, um, a partnership with uh, New York City DOT, and we established this idea of developing a pedestrian walkway under the demapped sections of elevated train tracks um, uh, in the Rockaways. So there's about five miles of train tracks, um, and about half of that has been uh, demapped as roadways. So we've started really um, developing that area with New York City DOT as the Wellness Way initiative. And we started the pilot at Beach 59th Street to Beach 62nd Street. Um, People have over the summer and since COVID, we've had uh, COVID test sites with uh, Test and Trace all of last week. We've had food distribution from our um, farm share um, uh, program that we've done since Uh, the end of May and we'll continue doing through uh, the end of November. So that's a drive-through pickup for uh, fresh uh, organic produce. Um, And then we've also hosted a number of other activities um, over the weekend and past couple uh, and the future um, uh, few weeks. We'll be developing a mural and other things to really promote the area as a safe area for gathering, um, especially in the midst of COVID.
1: And so I've got just a minute left, but there's something also you mentioned to me when we were just talking the other day, something to look forward to that's coming up later this month, a documentary uh, that you're involved in. Can you just give our listeners a brief uh, synopsis of what's going to take place?
3: Sure. So we are, uh, over the summer, we actually hosted uh, 50 young people uh, for summer programming that was done entirely virtual. And we hosted a, a documentary uh, where the kids, we brought in writing coach Amy Sultan and, Ma- and uh, Matthew Septimus, uh, who is a photographer, and Nick Nehez, um, who's a film editor, uh, to have the kids work on documenting their own stories in the midst of COVID. Um, so this uh, documentary that will be screened um, on October 21st um, is titled Everything is Different Now, Portrait of Pandemic. Uh, we will be having a fundraiser on October 21st if people are interested Um, and then it will also be featured at the Rockaway Film Festival on October 25th. So um, I hope people do tune in and join us to learn a little bit more about the experiences of young people uh, in New York City in the midst of COVID.
1: And if our listeners do want to learn more about Rise or about the film, where should they go?
3: Yeah, so uh, they can go to our website, riserockaway.org. They can also check out our Twitter feed uh, at Rise Rockaway or Instagram, also Rise Rockaway.
1: Jean DuPont, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI this morning. Great. Thank you so much, Jeff. I appreciate it. So you've been listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM, also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I was just talking with Jean DuPont and executive director of RISE, the Rockaway Initiative for Sustainability and equity. So with that I'm going to get to my final guest the reason that I decided I should do a show on the Rockaway. She's got a new book out called Rockaway Surfing Headlong into a New Life, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt which Publishers Weekly said of the book, quote, readers don't have to surf to be taken away by Diane Cardwell's story. It's a rich account of living through disaster and rebuilding in its aftermath and Kirkus Reviews called it a quote, big hearted, uplifting Memoir. I'm talking about Diane Cardwell, a founder of Vibe magazine and a former reporter at the New York Times, where I had first crossed crossed paths with Diane in what seems like a century ago. She was among the inaugural writers of Portraits of Grief. The Times' signature profiles of those who had been killed in the 9 11 World Trade Center attacks. She also covered alternative energy, politics, urban development, and even surfing, focusing on how new priorities, tastes, and policies and technologies change people's lives. And before coming to the Times, she also had been an editor at Seven Days, an award winning New York weekly that had closed in 1990, and an arts and entertainment contributor and editor at a number of national magazines. And she lived she gardens and she surfs in Rockaway Beach. Welcome to WBAI City Watch. Thanks so much for having me. Nice to talk to you after all these years. <laughs> it feels so it feels in a way it was so long ago but it still feels like yesterday with you. It's great to have you on the show this Indeed. morning, Diane. So, as I read Rockaway, I was not reading a book just about surfing. I felt that it was an an inspiring story about rebirth in so many ways. So I'd like to just start off by asking what type of person Diane Cardwell was before you discovered surfing and a little about your personal journey.
4: So, so I had at the time, you know, I had a life that looked very good from the outside, right? I had a prestigious job that I loved. I had an interesting and handsome husband, a really nice, I you know, sort of, we'd kind of clawed our way up the Brooklyn housing bubble. We had a lovely townhouse. Um, You know, I had everything I thought I wanted. And yet, I also had this sense that I just wasn't quite satisfied or happy, that things were not quite as they should be. And so after my marriage fell apart, um, which was devastating, I kind of, I had to, sort of regroup and to kind of figure out how was I going to be happy again and I was kind of in the midst of that process I had been very lucky to get a fellowship to go to California and study at Stanford for a year and you know kind of rediscovered some things that I enjoyed doing one with photography things that I had for some reason that I, I, I still don't fully understand and kind of let go by the wayside um But I just needed, I just wanted, I just realized that I had to take charge of my own life and figure out what was going to make me happy um, going forward. And then somehow, well, luckily, I stumbled upon surfing, which, even though I was terrible at it, was just so much fun um, that I had to pursue it. And that is what led me um, ultimately to move to Rockaway.
1: Take us to that first moment where you were on assignment in the Rockaways for the Times, and how that started you on this path.
4: So actually, I was on the very first time um, I was actually on assignment in Montauk. Um, Montauk. I, I was yeah. I was. I had this beat. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I had this this uh, this beat um, on the metro desk covering bars, covering hospitality, which meant that basically I had to be in bars, restaurants, and hotels all the time. So, <laughs> you know, what's wrong with that? Um, and I, I had gone out to Montauk to do a story about how um, there was this sort of wave of hipster hotels and, you know, it was getting kind of spiffed up and very, and very kind of hipsterified. And um, it occurred to me that, you know, I'd heard it was a surf town. And so I thought, oh, well, maybe I should go see what these surfers have to say about it. You know, they're kind of rebels and outlaws and you know, that was my, that was my impression of what a surfer was. Um, you know, I had, I had never had an instant of interest in surfing growing up. You know, I grew up in Manhattan. I was really a city girl. And um, I thought that, and, you know, I thought that I had that kind of, I don't know, Jeff the Coley stoner dude image in my head <laughs> of what surfing was. And also, you know, those pictures, those videos that you see on Wide World of Sports of just gigantic walls of water with, you know, the surfers looking like little specks on them. And I thought, you have to be out of your mind to want to do that. And so so I got to the surf beach in Montauk, and I was just stunned and transfixed by what I saw, which were these kind of beautiful, graceful creatures on their surfboards, they looked literally like they were dancing on the water. And the waves were really mellow and beautiful and sparkly. And I just thought, oh, this is surfing? And then I thought, well, maybe I could do that. Um, And literally, it's been a kind of, you know, obsessive journey uh, for me ever since, because that day I came off the beach and there was a tiny little house with a for rent sign um, and it turned out to be something that I could afford. It was open. You know, the woman who owned it had one week open, which just happened to be the week I'd already scheduled to take off. And so I thought, you know, the universe is trying to tell you something. You should pursue this. And so
1: I did. And what's so interesting is throughout the book, Self discovery seems to be a common thread, uh, and also challenging oneself. There were many times when uh, it's you know you wrote about this where you started out with with doubt, but then came you came to a realization Mm -hmm. that you should not give up or have a different mindset. Can you give me an example of of a moment that defined this?
4: Well, yeah. So this was um, part of this came from the, the household that I grew up in. Right? I grew up in a very you know, achievement-oriented um, household where you know my parents felt like you know as African Americans, education, achievement—you have to be good. This is how you're going to survive um, and you know thrive in this world. And um, and so that led me to have a tremendous fear of failure. And you know, part of it was you know my dad had a drinking problem, could be very volatile. And I just felt like, you know, I cannot, I'm not going to have any peace unless, you know, I do well in school and, you know, and never, ever fail. And that became a kind of organizing principle for me going forward. And so when I started surfing, um, as I said, I was terrible and I, I came out this was actually part of how I started coming to Rockaway is that I just realized I needed to take lessons if I was ever going to be even halfway decent. And so I found that to my great surprise that you could surf in Rockaway. Um, and so I came out and, and took a lesson. And at the end of the lesson, you know, I, I felt like I had made a tiny little bit of progress. But as I, you know, rode the A train back to Dead Stuy where I was living at the time, I just remember feeling this real having this realization that I was going to have to learn to fail, right? If I was going to ever really, you know, pursue this sport, I was going to have to get comfortable with failing and not just failing, but failing in public. That's the thing, you know, about surfing, (laughs) you don't do well, everyone can see you. And so, (laughs) um, (laughs) so that, that was just, that was a big, that was a big Eureka moment for me. And, And, you know, it really, it really is, is something that, you know, sometimes I still have to talk myself through, you know, just say like, say to myself, okay, come on, don't worry. (laughs) You know, if you want this, you're going to have to
1: keep trying. Um, And what was also, what was so interesting also, as you walked us through this journey, was you also teach the reader or, or advise the reader on how waves work, how the ocean works, uh-huh. the things you look for right. uh, when identifying the wave. I mean, that seems so fascinating.
4: Right. Well, you know, the thing about surfing is you spend a lot of time, well, it's, you know, you're in the water, and, 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 and the ocean is an incredibly mystical and mysterious force. Um, and I wanted to share with readers, you know, some of the stuff that I had learned just because, you know, you do often, unless you're at, you know, a tremendous, you know, a tremendously generous reef break or something, you know, where the waves break, where they come, how often they come. It's, you know, they can be few and far between and kind of the entry points, especially at the kind of break that I surf here in Rockaway, which is a beach break, which means it's sandbars largely. Um, it shifts, and so just um, under, beginning to understand the mechanics of how waves work is was something that to me was just fascinating. And in writing the book, I still had to do a fair amount of research because I kind of, I sort of under, had learned, I could intuit what was going on, but I wanted to be able to really explain it. And you know, I'd never taken physics, and so I, I read a number of scholarly articles and books. But but the best thing was actually coming across a description from Jack London about how energy transfers through the water to make a wave um, by Jack London. And he, it was just, I just thought, oh my God, this is the most the beautiful, clear explanation of this phenomenon. And so I'm just going to quote it because, you know, I'm not going to do better than Jack London.
1: <laughs> what was, what was the deciding factor that made you say, I'm moving, I'm moving out of bed starting to Rockaway? Well,
4: it was, it actually came in Stages. The, the first, the first thing was just um, was deciding to buy a, a little bungalow, and um, that evolved out of just spending so much time here, both to surf and also hang out at um, our friend Bob Hart's house, and kind of beginning to feel part of the community and sort of slipping into the rhythm of life here, and realizing that I just I wanted to. I wanted to have that more often. Um, and also I wanted more of a base where I could, I could surf more. Um, and so, but I had not thought that I was going to actually live here because I thought, oh, it's just so far from, you know, my job in Midtown and my life such as it is in Brooklyn. Um, and so I was going to maybe have it as just a weekend place. But then once I, you know, bought it and I was just, I just thought, this is, this is stupid. Just commit to this life, you know? I just, thought, I just felt like I, was, I realized I was holding on to, um, like, vestiges of the old life, which was just something that I had thought I wanted, but turned out to not really be what I wanted. And what I wanted turned out to be here in Rockaway.
1: So you moved to Rockaway before Superstorm Sandy hit. I have to say the chapter Indeed. in your book was just one of the most riveting chapters. You did something I would be, I can't say certain words on the radio, but I would be uh, scared a lot to walk outside <laughs> during the storm. But can you walk our, can you walk our listeners through your experience of weathering Superstorm Sandy? Because this, uh, you know, if there's one chapter that I keep visualizing you, uh, it is that chapter. Yeah. So,
4: so I think it was an act of insanity to walk outside during the storm, but, um, you know, I just so I had moved. I'd moved. I had you know done this big renovation. I felt like, oh, I'm here. I'm living my best life. everything fantastic. You know, <laughs> I had a, a group of friends I, who were surfers. that, you know the week leading up to the storm, there had been all these great events at the Rockaway Beach Surf Club, a women's surfing restaurant um, workshop, and I was I was just I was so excited and the you know there had been a big Halloween costume contest with you know surfers in costume and um and a big party the weekend before and so I just thought everything was great and then the storm happened and I was very much unprepared for it I think I had some candles and some water and some tuna fish and you know some whiskey and I, um, I was sort of, set, that day, I had, you know, looked at the water. It was just the most gigantic seas I had ever seen. Um, and so I was sitting in my upstairs office, um, kind of tooling around in the Internet, shopping for 4 by 5 film because I was thinking of get, starting to take pictures again. And all of a sudden, I sort of hear crack and a roar and I look and I see that there's water rushing down the street and I just hadn't been aware of what was going on outside Um, I ran to my basement the basement was flooding I sort of hopped up and down the steps for a minute and then I just thought I've got to get out of here and um, because I just I had this vision of you know my house flooding being trapped on the roof like victims in in Katrina and I just like I cannot be alone here and so pulled together some things, and I I look, I went outside, and it just was just like, oh my god, it's so much worse than I thought, but still, I just felt compelled to try to get to a house with higher ground, and I, I was going to actually try to go to my friend Bob, who, because he um, was uh, running coverage for New York One, and so he would have a generator, and I thought, okay, there will be other people, they'll know what to do, you know, I'll be safe, and when I got to the street, I just, I mean, the force of the water almost knocked me off my feet, um, and I realized I couldn't get there. And a friend across the street, um, which was in a house that's higher than mine, saw me, called out, and basically held out a pole, and and kind and kind of helped to help me get across the street and up to her house. And that's where and, I spent the
1: night. And we've got just a few minutes left, but uh, that brings me to the sense of community, the community that you found. Yeah there. Can you talk a little about the people and the community in the, in the area?
4: Well, it's funny, you know, I was listening earlier and everybody from Rockaway talks about the sense of community because it really is very, very strong here. Um, you know, one of the things, though, that I, I would say, is one of the things that was really compelling to me is that I, you know, my, my image of surfers had been that they were kind of closed off and, you know, outlaw rebels and kind of maybe even hostile. And, I, and, and that can be true, but, um, but I found a community of incredibly creative, generous people who were as excited as I was if I got a really good wave. And, and that kind of spirit also, you know, translates on land as well. And just seeing how people really came together to help each other after the storm um, made me feel even more rooted to the place um than than before
1: and there was this wonderful portion of the book and a, a, a few uh sentences that you said in its simplicity it just stuck with me and i'm going to quote it uh, do you do what you love and you will attract the right people into your life everything else will fall into place so has everything
2: well i don't know if
4: everything has but but certainly way more than i could have anticipated um and that was something that i've friend of mine, a a woman uh, who's a surfer out here said, and and it really stuck with me as well, which is why I put that little exchange in the book. Um, I just think that there is this way in which if you pursue something that you love, you're going to, you're going to find other people who love that thing too. And, and that is the first step to creating a community. And, and that is the thing that I have just realized is, so important um in life in general, and that's and that's you know and that also you know i mean sur- sur- surfing you know <laughs> even led me to love, which um was was pretty great too
1: and that was wonderful to see uh Diane, as I get ready to wrap up, what's next for you? Well, hopefully another book
4: um and hopefully one that's not quite so strongly focused on me, but I really. Really enjoyed um, the process of writing this book, and so I would I would love to do another one. I'm noodling around with a couple of ideas, and so hopefully I will figure that out soon.
1: And if people want to learn more about you and also discover more about Rockaway surfing headlong into a new life, where should they go?
4: Uh, my website, com.
1: Diane, it has been a pleasure to reconnect with you. Thank you so much for appearing oh, nice. here on WBAI. <laughs> okay, thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. Okay, have a care. great day.
0: You
1: too. So, uh, you've been listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. Uh, this is City Watch. I'm your host Jeff Simmons, and I was just talking with Diane Cardwell. Uh, formerly of the New York Times. Uh, I'd like to thank her as well as New York State Assemblymember Stacey Pfeffer Amato and Jean DuPont, founder and executive director of RISE, which is the Rockaway Initiative for Sustainability and Equity for appearing here on WBAI. I also want to thank my wonderful colleague, the amazing and oh so calm Sean Rhodes, engineer extraordinaire who always makes the show happen flawlessly each week, My co-host, David Brand, is going to be with you next Sunday morning, but I also want to tease out something that's happening later this week. Coming up this Thursday at 5 o'clock on my political show, Driving Forces, my guest is going to be former New York State Governor David Patterson. He's got a new book out just this week. It's called Black, Blind, and In Charge, and in it he describes in detail uh, details that we never knew before. Uh, how he found out he was going to become the next governor when Elliot Spitzer was ensnared in that prostitution scandal. It's at times humorous, enlightening, extremely engaging – uh, he's got an incredible wit because I had, for full disclosure, I worked on his campaign for lieutenant governor uh, You know uh, when he was running with Elliot Spitzer, and he, all of that humor and insight comes across in this book. So he's going to join me, and then our WBAI correspondent, Celeste Katz-Marston, is going to jump on later in the show to discuss her memories of the Patterson campaign. She was a reporter with the New York Daily News at that time, but the reason she's also appearing on is that she's going to talk about a new book that she has coming out regarding a topic on voting uh, that you're going to be extremely interested in hearing about. That's all I'm going to tell you about that for now because I really want to leave it to her to shed more light on this book and what she looked into. That's Driving Forces this Thursday at 5 o'clock. If you wish to follow me on social media where I announce our guests each week, my Twitter handle is at Jack Heights, J A C K H I T E S. That's because I live here in Jackson Heights for those who sometimes think I'm called Jack. But also, you should visit WBAI.org because near the top of that page is the slider and you get to see all of the people that are or many of the people that are coming up on all of our shows like uh on contact with chris chris hedges also of course city watch and all of the other shows that you watch so i'd like to again thank you for tuning in to city watch today and have a great day
4: And I'm a listener and supporter of WBAI. I'm a student at NYU and I live in New York City. And I want to shout out to the other young listeners of WBAI. We have to help keep the station going. And the easiest way to do it is through the WBAI buddy system. If you donate as little as $10 a month, you have proactively promoted
2: free speech radio. Go to the website WBAI.org, click the donate button, and make a difference.
3: Harris and Mike Pence face off for the only vice presidential debate of the election season this Wednesday, October 7th, 2020, starting at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, and 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And Pacifica Radio will air the debate right here on this station. I'm Johanna Fernandez, and I'll be hosting the vice presidential debate alongside Gloria J. Brown-Marshall. Together, we'll bring you an hour-long post-debate assessment, and we'll be taking your calls. That's the Vice Presidential Debate, Wednesday, October 7th, beginning at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, and 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, on your radio station. Coming to you from Pacifica's sister
2: station in New York, WBAI.
0: This station is so significant for me. I remember the days that we were fighting against uh, the overuse of stop and frisk. Uh, No other station would cover the conversation and inform the listeners.
3: Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. The
0: acronym for WBAI is where badass insurgents learn how to get their information out in a clear way. This station must survive. Connect the dots. There's a movement to destroy independent communications across this entire country, and this has become ground zero. We must do all that we must do roll up our sleeves, put Vaseline on our face, take our heels off, get into a deep fight, because we're about to fight. To keep this station alive. who's station? Our station!
3: This is listener-sponsored, locally controlled WBAI New York. Wash your
0: hands, everybody. And everybody, wash your hands. My people downtown, like wash your hands. Uh-huh. My people downtown, wash your hands. Uh-huh. People, downtown, your hands. Uh-huh. people from the more. East Coast, wash your hands. Uh-huh. People from the West Coast, wash your hands. That's right. First and foremost, please listen close. Take your time wash. You use a lot of soap from the front to the back, back to the front, the hook where you at. That's exactly what we want. You catch a little fever, shortness of breath, slight low cough. You feel it in your chest. You should call your doctor. Doctor know what's best. Don't go running to the hospital because you could be a threat.
1: Coronavirus.
0: Don't you get it? Don't you Can't, you see? Can't you see? We are living in a state of emergency. Epidemic pan. Damn it. Damn it, social distance, non-existence. Don't resist this, get gone in an instance. If you miss this. Thanks to you. Thank you for thinking of me. And I thank you. I, there. There. I wanna thank
1: each and every one of you for coming by. And while he's thanking those folks, let me take this opportunity to thank all of you, our listeners and support staff, our contributors, our interns, the volunteers, producers, and the entire crew that works countless hours to bring WBAI into your lives.
0: Hi, this is Tony Roberts.